I've never seen computer systems architecture and systems optimization being as interesting as it is right now, mm -hmm. right? Because it was a period of researching this. It was just about making microprocessors faster, making a little bit better compilers. But now that we have to specialize and there's this really exciting application space with machine learning that offers so many opportunities for optimizations. And you have things like FPGAs and it's getting easier to design chips. You know, it creates all, all sorts of opportunities for academic research and also for industrial innovation. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Luis Sezi is co-founder and CEO of OctoML, founder of the Apache TVM project and a professor of computer science at the University of Washington. He is an expert in making machine learning run efficiently on a variety of hardware systems, something that I'm super fascinated by and don't know a lot about. And so I could not be more excited to talk to him today. You know, why don't we just kind of jump right in, I guess. You know, you're the, the CEO of OctoML, right? And that's based on the Apache TVM project that I think you also authored. Can, can you just okay. kind of like, for people who don't know, kind of give a description of, of what that is? Yeah, sure. And maybe a quick, quick intro. Yeah. So, and I want to, I wear two hats. So I'm a CEO of OctoML and also a professor of computer science engineering at the University of Washington. You know, I have many machine learning friends and on, on the area. So I mean, machine learning systems, you know, so what does that mean? It means building computer systems uh, that make machine learning applications run fast and efficient and do what they're supposed to do in the easiest way possible. And often we use machine learning in making machine learning systems better, which is something that we should touch on at some point. It's an interesting topic. So Apache TVM, TVM stands for Tensor Virtual Machine. It started in our research group at the University of Washington about five years or so ago. And the context there was the following, you know, five years ago, which in machine learning time is just like eons ago, right? So there was already a growing set of machine learning models that, the pe that people care about and in a fast, you know, faster and faster growing set of those. The fragmentation in the software ecosystem was just starting, you know, the TensorFlow and PyTorch and MXNet, Keras and so on. And then hardware targets, you know, at that time were mainly CPUs in the beginning of GPUs and a little bit of accelerators back then, right? So, but our observation then was that, well, we have a growing set of models, growing set of hardware targets, and then this fragmentation that uh, is either you have a software stack that's specific to the hardware that you want to deploy your model to, or they're specific to use cases like computer vision or, or NLP and so on. We wanted to create a clean abstraction that would free data scientists or, or machine learning engineers from having to worry about how to get their models deployed, right? So we wanted to have them focus on the statistical properties of the model and then target a clean a single pane of glass clean abstraction across all of the systems and hardware such that you can deploy your model and make the most of the hardware targets as as possible uh, make as much as possible you know from 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 the hardware target you're deploying to as you all know here and since a lot of machine learning practitioners that listen to this you know machine learning code is extremely sensitive to performance right so uses a lot of memory use a lot of memory bandwidth which means that you know, use a lot of the ability of moving the data from memory to your compute engine and back, and also use a lot of raw compute power, right? So that's why, you know, the, the hard, machine learning, hard that is good for machine learning today, more and more look like supercomputers of not too long ago, like vector processing and, and matrix tensor cores and all of these things, right? So a lot of linear algebra. So making the most out of that is really, really hard. I mean, code optimization is already hard. Now, if you're optimizing code for something that's performance sensitive as machine learning, you're talking about a really hard job, right? So anyways, I'm getting there. I know it's a long story, but I hopefully it will be worth it. So what TVM did, what we started as a research question was that, can we automate the process of tuning your machine learning model and the actual code to the hardware targets that you want to deploy it to? 
Okay, mm -hmm. instead of having to rely on hand tune libraries, on on or relying on a lot of artisan coding to get your model to run fast enough, we wanted to use machine learning to automate that process. And the way that works is TVM runs a bunch of little experiments to build really a profile, a personality of how your hardware behaves, and use mm -hmm. that to guide a very large optimization space to tune your model and your code. Mm -hmm. So the end result from a user point of view is that you you take a model's input in TVM, you choose a harder target, and then what TVM does is it finds just the right way of tuning your model and compiling to a very efficient binary on your harder target. And I guess okay? when I think of like... Does that answer your question what TVM is? I know it's long, but I hope it's useful, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. I, I, I want to ask some more clarifying questions, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a hardware expert at all. And I guess like what I've observed, you know, trying to make ML models run on various hardware types is that it seems like it's harder and harder to like abstract away the hardware. Like the, you know, it's, it seems like people are really like kind of building models with specific hardware in mind sometimes, specific memory sizes and yeah. things like that. And I guess my question, my first question and is. And that's like, what we want to change. That's what we want to change. We want to remove that worry from, you know, <laughs> the model builders, right? We want them to focus on building the best statistical properties possible. And then everything else should be, should be left for engines like TVM and the optimizer that I can tell you more about later. Yeah. And so this TVM though, is it actually like a virtual machine where is it doing kind of real time, you know, compiling to the, to the hardware as the, as the model runs? That's part of the work. Yeah. So TVM by and large, just, we call jitting just in time compilation, mm -hmm. right? So the reason the just in time compilation is important is because, well, you learn more about the model as you run it, as you evaluate it. Right. And then second, you can do measurements of performance and make decisions about how we're going to tune the rest of your compilation. I see. Right, so it is it is a virtual machine in the sense that it offers a clean abstraction. It's not a virtual machine sense in the in the VMware sense. It's more like a virtual machine in the Java virtual machine sense, which I we see. can get. It's a whole it could be a whole different conversation. You know, <laughs> it's even closer to my world as a computer systems architect is thinking about you know those kinds of abstractions, right? But uh, TVM is a virtual machine in the sense that it exposes a well defined interface for you to express what your model does and gets that what we call lower down to the hardware target. Yeah. Got it. And is this typically for deployment or could it also apply for training time? Great question. So uh, TVM so far, you know, by and large, its use has been for inference, right? So you have a model that's being trained. You have uh, often have done quantization too by then and so on. And then you run it through TVM because that we see that as a strength is that you apply all the optimizations that could change the statistical property of your model and you validate your model that way. And then whatever we do, from there on should be seen as a process that preserves exactly what your model does. We don't want to change anything because we see that it's complementary to all of the other optimization that, that you know, model builders would apply before then. So then what TVM does is really like a compiler, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a compiler plus, you know, code generator plus a runtime system. And we specialize everything to your model and the hardware target. We really produce a custom package that is ready to be deployed, that has custom everything, a custom lighter of operators for your model, has a custom runtime system for your model, and then wraps it up into a package that you can just go and deploy. Got it. And are you picturing typically, is this kind of like edge and like kind of low power compute environments, or is this more for like servers? Yeah, like great question. So remember that I was telling you about automating the process and using machine learning to discover what the hardware can do and can do well and use that to guide uh, to guide the optimization, that's mm -hmm. that that 
that frees us from having to make that choice because essentially, as long as there's no magic involved, obviously, if you have a giant, you know, GPT three like model on a run on a one milliwatt power microcontroller, this is just simply not going to work, right? So that's the obvious. But but in terms of the actual basic flow of having what we call cost models for the harder target and use those predictive models to guide how to optimize a model for that specific harder target. It's essentially the same from teeny microcontrollers all the way to giant, you know, beefy uh, GPUs or accelerators that we, or FPGA-based stuff that we support as well. That means that TVM doesn't have any preference of either, right? So we've had use cases both in the open source community, in the research space as well that we support and we still do it ourselves. All the way into our, our current, you know, customers at OctoML, we, we have customers for both edge deployment and cloud deployment because the basic technology is effectively the same. Some of the actual deployment aspects and the plumbing changes a bit. You know, if you're going to deploy it on a tiny device, you might not even have an operating system, for example. So mm-hmm. we support some of that. That's different than a, a server deployment. But the core aspect of how to make your model run fast on harder targets is essentially the same. I see. And so I guess like the, you know, for for kind of server level deployments, I feel like, you know, with the exception of, of TPUs and a, and a few companies, it seems like almost everyone you know, deploys onto like NVIDIA stuff. So, so do you, is this sort of like outside of CUDA and CUDANEN or does it, does it translate into something that can then be compiled by CUDA? Like how how does that work? Yeah, this this is an excellent question. So first let's think about just a world with NVIDIA and then let's just free ourselves from that with the tyranny (laughs) of that, which is part of the, actually this is part of the goal here too. You know, I love NVIDIA, many friends there admire what they do, but you know, people should have a choice, you know, so, and there's a lot of of really good non-NVIDIA hardware. NVIDIA makes great hardware. There's a lot of really great non-NVIDIA hardware there, right? So, Mm -hmm. but let's start with NVIDIA. Let's let's imagine a world that all you care about is deploying on NVIDIA, right? Mm -hmm. So NVIDIA has, at a very lower level of the of their compilation stack, they, they do not expose their what we call the instruction set, right? So that's actually it's kept secret. They don't expose it. You have to program using CUDA. That's the lowest level, right? Mm-hmm. So and there's CUDNN on top, and then there's also parallel to that you have TensorRT, for example, which is more of a compiler that you compile a model to the harder target, right? So uh, TVM can be parallel, but at the same time use those. So here's what I mean, right? So both CUDNN and TensorRT are generally guided and tuned and improved based on models that people care about and moves with, with where the models are going. There's some some fair amount of tuning that moves with where the models go, right? Mm-hmm. So whereas TVM, again, generates fresh code for every fresh model. So that means that in some cases, we do better than TensorRT and CUDNN just because we can specialize enough in a fully automatic way to your to the specific GPU, NVIDIA GPU that you have, and then we generate raw CUDA code that you just compile down, right? So mm-hmm. essentially, you run your model to TVM, produce a ton of CUDA codes, and then you compile that into a deployable binary on that specific NVIDIA GPU. But in the process of doing that, TVM, I mean, we do not take a dogmatic view that you should only use TVM. In some cases, of course, you know, NVIDIA's libraries or NVIDIA's compiler like TensorIT can do better, and we want to be able to use that too. So what TVM does, it does what we call best of all worlds, that in the process of exploring how to compile your model for parts of your model, say a set of operators, it mm-hmm. sees like, you know, TVM's version and then CUDNN and then TSRT and picks like, oh, this operator is better to use CUDNN. You just go and put it in. And then we link the whole thing together such that what we produce for you is could it's, it could be a Franken binary, right? So bits and pieces <laughs> are, you know, parts of a, a CUDNN, maybe TensorRT or, you know, TVM generated code and produces a package that essentially specializes for your model, including the choice of whether you should or should not use NVIDIA's own software stack. Okay, so did I answer your question on NVIDIA? So this is how- Yeah, this is yeah, put- totally. 
And by the way, this is just TVM. We should talk about the optimizer later. The optimizer, sure. you want to abstract all of that away even further, which is you upload your model, and then you can choose, you have a checkbox of all sorts of hardness, Intel CPUs, AMD CPUs, NVIDIA GPUs, soon AMD GPUs, and then Raspberry Pis and all the stuff, and you can let it tune for all of those. And in some cases, you might choose to run and use a native stack for you. So we don't even have to think about that. That's, that's really what we want to offer. Like, we do not have to worry about it. So mm -hmm. now... Okay, TVM, uh, Apache TVM, that's just focused on the open source now, has got quite a bit of traction in both end users and hardware vendors. Like end users, you know, companies like Microsoft, Amazon, you know, Facebook and so on have, have used it, some of them using heavily today. And But now hardware vendors have got more and more into the, into the TVM world, mm -hmm. like ARM built their CPU, GPU, and NPU compiler and software stack on top of TVM. We're working with AMD to build one for AMD GPUs as well. Right, mm -hmm. so GPUs and CPUs. Qualcomm has built their software stack with TVM, and we are working with them to to further broaden the reach of the hardware that's supported by that. The reason I'm telling you this is that you know, as as we enable hardware like you know AMD GPUs to be used very effectively, you know, via TVM, you know, I think we will start offering users a meaningful choice here. They should go with the hardware to better serve them without having to necessarily choose that based on on the software stack. Right, so. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a couple of specific questions? Is that um, question or does that make sense or not? Yeah. No, that makes total yeah. sense. But I, I'm kind of so you know when we we do a lot of work with Qualcomm and they talk a lot about Onyx, which I think you know my understanding is that's sort of a translation layer between yeah. mm -hmm. you know models and and places that like hardware that it could deploy on. So how how is that? How does that connect with TVM? Yeah, so there's no visualizer I could show you, but you know, there's uh, think of it as there's, there's a stack, right? So the lowest level you have hardware, and then you add what you have or compiler and operating system, and then you have your code generator. So that's where or libraries, right? So mm -hmm. too, and that's where TVM sits. And then on top of that, you have your model framework like TensorFlow, PyTorch, Chasm, etc., and so on. Uh -huh. Onyx as as a spec is 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 wonderful, right? So essentially, it's a common language for you to describe models. Uh -huh. Okay, so and then you and TVM takes as input models written specified in Onyx. I but see. it also takes native TensorFlow, native PyTorch, native Charism, etc. and so on. But Onyx is like, if you go to the optimizer service today, uh -huh. you can upload an Onyx model. Got right? it, and, got then, and then in the guts of the optimizer, you go and call TVM to import the model and do its magic, right? But Onyx, think of Onyx as a, a language to describe models. And so do you think that, I mean, I feel like one of the reasons that I've heard that NVIDIA has been so hard to, you know, displace as sort of the main way people deploy most of their stuff is because the CUDA and N libraries is so effective. Like, do you sort of imagine that as TVM gets gets more powerful, it opens things up to other hardware yeah. companies? That's right. Yeah. And okay, so I think NVIDIA has been brilliant in offering, I mean, they, they have a really, really good software stack and they, have, they of course, have good hardware too. But mm -hmm. the fact they have a usable and broad, and I would say arguably some of the, the best um, low-level machine learning system software stack there gives them a huge advantage, right? So some other hardware could be just as good in terms of raw processing power, model memory, and kinds of architecture and so on. You know, if they don't have a good software stack, they're simply not competitive, right? So, and we definitely see TVM as offering that choice too, right? And again, I, I don't want to sound like uh, we are going to go and compete with, with NVIDIA. That's not the point. I'm just thinking, just think about this, right? So today in... Forget machine learning. Let's just think about operating systems, right? So you have Linux. Linux uh, runs in pretty much all the hardware that you care about, right? Uh -huh. Sure, you might still choose to run Windows, right? So, but mm -hmm. at least you can, in the same hardware, you can choose to run Windows or or Linux. Right? So think of it as CVM as offering a choice of what kind of operating system you'd run on your hardware, except that 
you do, you don't have to choose a proprietary one. And you, you know, in the in the machine learning world with Nvidia, there's essentially no choice today unless you're gonna go and write CUDA code directly, right? So, so I guess like one of the things, and this is this is probably the part of the show where I ask the dumb questions that my team is gonna make fun of me for. But kind of in the back of my head, I feel like I always have this mystery where like a new version of CUDA then comes out, and like the models get like way faster with just a yeah. better library. And, and, you know, I think about like what a model does, like a convolution or like, you know, a matrix multiplication. It seems so simple to me. Huh. It's, it just seems, and but that's kind of how it seems like, cause I feel yeah, like I come from I more of a math background and I'm just like, how could, you know, like many years in to like making a this library, like could under years, how could there be a 20% speed no. up on a matrix multiplication like what's That's going a on question yeah great question lucas and all right so uh, <laughs> we should take a whiteboard out and i'll show it to you so because then it gets even closer to to my world let's 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 think about computer architecture for a second right so let's say that you you are an, an execution engine like a processor or a core in a gpu right so you have to grab let's start with one reason like you have to grab data from somewhere in memory right so turns out that computers uh, you know, memory is organized in ways that depending on where the data is in memory, which actual address physically in your memory it is, it gives you much better performance than others, like by a huge margin, right? Mm -hmm. So because depending on how you lay it out the data, you can actually make the most use of the wires between your memory and your processor, between your cache and your actual execution engine in the silicon itself. Mm -hmm. But figure out where that goes becomes a, a combinatorial problem because not only you have to choose where the data structure go, but also when you have a bunch of nested loops that implements your convolution, you have to choose, like if you have a four uh, deep nested loop, in which order should you execute them? Any order is valid. Which mm -hmm. order should you execute them? And then within those, you might want to traverse, like what size of blocks are you going to traverse that? Mm -hmm. So, and all of that is highly dependent on the, on the parameters of your convolution. That's mm -hmm. just, I'm just speaking convolution, right? So yep. even just general uh, matrix multiplication, right? So a long story short, for any given operator, there's literally potentially billions of ways in which you can compile the same bit by bit equivalent program in terms of output, but mm -hmm. one of them is going to be potentially a thousand times faster than, than, than the slowest one. So picking the right one is hard. Often this is done today by human intuition and some amount of automatic tuning called auto-tuning, right? So what's happening in CUDNN as you see your model gets faster is that you have, NVIDIA can afford a large number of programmers, right? So a lot of really talented software engineers, they, they observe where the models are going. There's some models that matters to them. They're gonna go, they're going to look at the models, see the parameters of all of the operators, how they're stitched together. And then they're gonna start tuning the libraries to make sure that they do better data layouts, they make better loop ordering, they do better tiling of how the data structure works. They choose the direction which they're traversing data structures and so on. And that's just one type, that's just one operator, but now models, operators talk to other operators, right? So that's why there's something mm -hmm. called operator fusion. If you fuse two operators, for example, mm -hmm. like a matrix multiplication, a convolution to a single operator. Uh -huh. So now you can generate code in a way that you can keep data as close to your processing engine as much as possible. So you make much better use of your memory hierarchy. And that's yet another significant performance bump, right? So. It might give you a general sense like this. Totally, is what that was really in. helpful, yeah. So I guess you um, can't actually decompose yeah. the problem down into, I was sort of picturing that each step in the compute graph, you could optimize it separately, but actually you have to... No, you want to do them together. In fact, yeah, if you if you read the TVM, there were like two, like actually three TVM, three PhD theses, you know, at the very least, you know, those are the ones that I've been uh, involved in on, on the core of TVM. And, you know, if you read the first paper, it's been around for several years now, one of the key messages there, the highest level was the following, is that by doing high level 
graph optimization together with code optimization. That's where a lot of the power comes from. So essentially, say if you choose to fuse to two operators in the graph, now we need to generate really good code for it. So now you're going to go and use our automatic, highly specialized code generator that uses machine learning to do the search for this new operator that fused the two with different parameters. So by combining high-level graph optimizations with low-level code generation that's specialized to that, you have significant multiplicative optimization opportunities. Interesting. Does that give you... Yeah. So that's No, no, that's the, really helpful. Yeah. yeah. I guess, do, do the, does the new... TPU architectures kind of change anything about this optimization or does it change like what you're doing at all? Well, it's a different hardware architecture, so you need to go and tune for it as well. But you remember that TPUs are also made of a bunch of transistor functional units and floating point units and vector units, and they have wires, they have memories organized in different in, 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 in a certain way that you want to make the most of, right? In a sense, a lot of these specialized architectures what they do, and in fact, we, uh, TVM also has an open source CPU-like accelerator that's fully open source hardware. You can actually stamp it out in FPGA. Some folks have stamped it out in actual custom silicon. That gives you sort of like a template of how you think about these accelerators, right? So, mm-hmm. and they also have parameters. So the different sizes of memories and buffers, what data types you support, you know, how many functional units you have to to keep to have the right throughput, and it's all a balance of. You know, how you organize your memory, how much of your silicon you're going to devote to compute versus storage, how many wires and how is your interconnection network to move data around is connected. The reason I'm telling you this is that many times the trade-off here is the following. You might, you might make the hardware more complicated to program, harder to program, okay, mm-hmm. but immensely more efficient. Mm. But that means that now you need to rely even more on a compiler to make really good code generation and specialize how you're going to compile your code to that specific hardware target. Right, right. Because, you know, that's a fair trade-off, right? Compilation you do once, it might be complicated, uh-huh. but then if you subsume harder, they have to do every time as data is flowing, it's much better to do it ahead of time, right? So, Isn't this a little, I mean, I'm digging deep into my computer science education, but I, I feel like the story with, with computer, like the non-deep learning chips, hasn't it been sort of like simpler, kind of like smaller instruction sets and, and trying to like, like simplify things? It seems sort of the opposite direction of like adding complexity into the hardware and then relying on the yeah. compiler to, to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So no, it's, a, it's a great question. And there, there's so many, and it did be a whole other conversation too. But you know, the the whole, when when the risk versus assist debate happened in the computer architecture class that I that I teach, you know, <laughs> at grad level, I actually have them have debates, right? So the, the key aspect there was that by going to a simpler instruction set, you had simpler hardware, so you can actually clock it faster. So mm-hmm. you could have Lots of little instructions, but you execute a lot of them per end of time, so you can make it run faster, right? So it turns out that even complex instruction computers today, like x86 and Intel, they break it down automatically into teeny instructions. It still looks like a risk computer inside, right? So now, but fast forward to today, what's going on is that there was a huge change in the trends and we've seen performance coming from in computer, in different computer architectures, right? So as we get closer and closer to the limits of scaling of transistor technology, what happens is the following. You have a certain number of transistors. They're getting ever smaller and more, more uh, power efficient. There was a change uh, that transistors are getting smaller, but not necessarily much more power efficient, which means that you can pack more transistors on the chip, but you cannot turn all of them on at the same time. Mm. You might be saying, like, why am I telling you this? Right. So because that's the whole just justification for going more and more specialized and have a big chip, a bigger chip with lots of different, quote unquote, more specialized function units. They're not general, but they're much more efficient because every time you add generality in the hardware, you fundamentally you're adding more switches, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, general purpose CPU can, that can do anything. 
there's like a large fraction, more than half of the transistors there are just simply sitting there asking questions. Am I doing this or that? If I'm doing this, I do this. And they're like, you know, and then having have to make decisions about the data that's flowing through because it's supposed to be general, mm-hmm. right? So the trend that we're seeing now is that, well, we need to make this thing much more efficient. Otherwise, we can't afford the power to run a global infrastructure or you can't afford the power to run machine learning in your, <laughs> like you have to squeeze efficiency from somewhere. The way you squeeze efficiency, you squeeze, you remove all these transistors just sitting there wondering what they should do with transistors that do only one thing and one thing very, very, very well. Mm-hmm. Sure, it makes it more harder to program because now you have to figure out when and how you should use these specialized functional units, but they're immensely more efficient in terms of, of performance per watt and immensely faster than general purpose computers. So like, did I answer your question or did I make it more complicated? Did I confuse you or did I? No, this is incredible. I feel like I'm finally getting clear answers to questions that have been in my head for a long time. So I'm I'm actually really, really enjoying this, but I guess what should I be imagining as like a specialized instruction? Like I hear like on the M1 laptop, there's like a specialized thing to like play videos or like, what does like a specialized instruction look like? Is it like there's a convolution instruction that I could pass through? For example, it's an eight by eight uh, matrix multiply, single oh, instruction, wow. right? <laughs> really? So, yeah, that that that's yeah. You can invoke that. You set up, you put all the data in the right place, and you say eight by eight, uh, eight by eight matrix multiply. Boom, it happens. And like or one va- in one tick. It, yeah, in, it doesn't. In, in, not, not exactly in one tick. It's like it's one instruction, which means that you give it one command. It could be broken down into multiple multiple cycles, depending on how it's scheduled. But uh-huh. from your programming point of view, there is hard. There's you know, uh, hardware there is essentially an arrangement of your transistors that implements your functional units and your memories organized in such a way. There's something called a systolic array. I don't know if you heard this term before, but no. systolic arrays, it's an array of multiply and accumulate. So I think it that way, right? So you can just flow data in a specific way that uh-huh. if you just arrange it just right and you flow it to in one flow, you've done a, an eight by eight uh, GMF, right? So, but to do that, you have to arrange all the data in the right place and then click go, right? So uh-huh. not click, issue an instruction <laughs> go. Right. But now uh, to answer your video compression question or video deco- or video codec, right? So uh-huh. we call it an instruction, but more likely it's essentially a piece of hardware that's just sitting there, knows where to read data from. And what you do is just configure it. You're not giving the program for real is actually in the actual function specific hardware. And all okay. you do in your code is to say, activate that now. Here's the data stream, activate that. And then you have a fixed function hardware that just starts crunching through that and decoding your video, for example, or applying a certain a certain computation. Another thing that people are doing in hardware is activation functions. Mm-hmm. Some activation functions are so popular, people use it all the time, that why are you going to break it down into 30, 40 instructions? You can design a piece of hardware, this, that, and just that. And all you're doing is when you call that, that activation function, you just activate that piece of hardware. Wow. Right? But so, I mean, yeah. Wow. So I guess like... If if it's like sort of laws of physics that are pushing this trend, it seems like you probably expect this trend to continue for a long time, right? And and if it does, like, oh, yeah. well, where would it go? Like, would there be sort of even more and more complicated um, instructions possible in the hardware? And wouldn't that sort of make research harder? Like, what if you wanted to do a new activation function that wasn't available? Yeah, in your it's hardware a great. Side? Yeah, so that's a really great question, Lucas. So all right, let me let me. Right, answer the first big question first, and then we can we can branch down to 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 these other sub questions about research and how do we continue advancing this. So yeah, so that's the reality right now. The it, you, you we're gonna see, we already have a quite a bit of diversity, not just of different hardware chips and hardware parts. You know, just look at all the AI chip companies out there. Just look at what's happening to the general purpose processors like Intel processors getting specialized instructions that are relevant to machine learning and so on. So that's going that's going to continue going because. Honestly, there is just no other way to get efficiency 
unless now I'm gonna let me open like a, a nerdy, not joke, but a nerdy speculation. Unless we can teach atoms to rearrange themselves at the atomic level to go into like let's reconfigure where your wires are, and therefore you have your chip doing a new thing. You know, is that you like only... a there's a kind of chip like that, right? Like a FPGA or so, is that yeah, a... so but I'm gonna get this. So but there's no <laughs> magic. FPGAs is just there's a bunch of wires that are there. You're just inserting data to tell you how which wires you should use, but the wires are always there. And mm -hmm. just the fact that you have a table that tells you if I have this bit on, I'm gonna use this wire. If I have this bit on, I'm gonna use the other wire, just mm -hmm. that causes inefficiencies. So it's always a trade-off. Think of it as a trade-off between how general or hard is your, so there's a generality versus specialized curve. More general, less energy efficient, easier to program. Uh -huh. More specialized, right? So uh, more efficient, harder to program and so on, right? So, but then you have FPGs, like how about FPGs? FPGs are essentially, they are very general fabric with a very complicated programming model mm -hmm. because FPGAs, what they are, they're a fabric of, of their bag of wires and little routing tables and sprinkled some multiply and accumulates or more and more like activation functions and other popular compute elements that you just sprinkle in in an even fabric and then you just set bits to figure out how you're going to route the data. Mm -hmm. So that looks like the way you program that looks like how you design hardware and they can be very efficient if you do it right. But fundamentally, they're not going to be more efficient than true fixed function chips. So you're never mm -hmm. going to see a an FPGA competing with the GPU on the very same task. You see FPGAs competing with things like GPUs and so on when you can specialize to your application. And even with the efficiency hit of the hardware, you still have a win. Does that make sense? So totally. for example, let's say if you decide that you want two bits uh, data flow for like, let's say you do quantization to two bits here in one layer, three bits on the other layer, and you know one bit on the other <laughs> layer, right? So. Uh -huh. If it just so happens there's no existing silicon that can do that for you, existing CPU or, G or, CP or GPU that can do that for you, mm -hmm. chances are you're going to be living with an eight bit data, like data plane, and you're going to ignore some bits there, and then you're going to waste efficiency there, or you're going to do an inefficient packing. Right. But with an FPGA, you can organize it such that you only activate, the, you only route your circuits for to use the two bits or one bit or three bits. In that case, because the data type is, is more unique, mm -hmm. uh, you can specialize to your model and then you can do really well uh, with an FPGA. That makes sense. That and now on research, answer your question research. Yeah, so research I think is getting more interesting, honestly. I, I haven't seen, maybe I'm getting old, you know, and a curmudgeon here, but I, <laughs> I feel like, I'm say a curmudgeon, I'm, I'm, I'm being old and optimistic here is that I've never seen computer systems architecture and systems optimization being as interesting as it is right now, mm -hmm. right? Because it was a period of researching this, it was just about making microprocessors faster, making a little bit better compilers. But now that we have to specialize and there's this really exciting application space with machine learning that offers so many opportunities for optimizations. And you have things like FPGAs and it's getting easier to design chips. You know, it creates all, all sorts of opportunities for academic research and also for industrial innovation. Hence, we see all of these wonderful new chips and Xilinx with new FPGAs and new FPGA companies and Samba Nova with reconfigurable fabrics and all of these hardware targets, right? So I guess, I mean, this is a little bit, maybe this, well, I guess I'm curious. It seems like ML is becoming a bigger and bigger fraction of data centers and data centers are becoming a bigger and bigger fraction of, you know, global energy use. Like, do you feel like there's an environmental impact that you can have by making um, these things run more efficiently? Absolutely. Yeah. And we're not the only ones who, to, to make the claim. Like, you know, essentially every time you make an algorithm faster in the same hardware, you're saving energy, you're saving trees, right? So you're, you're reducing resource pressure. So performance optimization is this wonderful thing that you can reap the benefits in so many ways. If you make it faster, you're going to make your users happy. 
but also even if it's not latency sensitive, you're going to make your, your finance folks happier because you're going to spend less on cloud bills. But in the end, you're going to be using less energy and that, that really matters, right? So now what, what's interesting about environmental impact specifically is that the, as you pointed out, the lo- there's a growing fraction of energy in the world that's devoted to, to computing, right? So I'm not going to get into cryptocurrencies. Like we're not going to go there right now. That's a whole separate topic. Think about the energy cost of that. <laughs> Let's just think about, you know, the energy cost of machine learning infrastructure that includes training and deploying models at scale, right? So it's fair to say that in a typical application that uses machine learning today, the majority of the cycles will go to the machine learning computation, right? So even mm-hmm. memory that you have to keep alive with, with energy, right? So anything that, that you can do to make the hardware more efficient, to make your model more efficient at the model layer or making it by, via com- compiling and optimizing the model-specific hardware is a win, both in terms of user experience and energy efficiencies. And by making it more energy efficient, you make it much less environment, environmentally impactful, right? So absolutely. So you should take every opportunity you can to reduce the the energy that your models use, especially if it's deployed at scale, even if it doesn't matter from a user experience point of view, you should do it because that's just the right thing to do, right? So, can you really separate the like the the model compiling and and performance and the way that the models designed? Like, it feels like a lot of the performance improvements in models come from sort of relaxing the constraint that you need to like exactly yeah. do the convolution or the matrix. I mean, just for example, like quantization. You know, yeah. where you, you do it in like a ludicrously like small, you know, like level of, of, of precision it seems to work really well. No, absolutely. Uh, no, and I did not mean to imply that that we we should only do uh, model compilation. Like, remember that I said, like, I'm assuming that you're going to come with your model tuned for what it, for, for the least amount of computation you possibly use. That's the ideal case. But you're absolutely right that, you know, there are optimizations at the model level that actually changes the statistical output of the model that enables new optimizations. And we can do that too, but TVM does have support, growing support for quantization. But what I'm particularly interested in, in general, is how do you put things like TVM in the whole network architecture search loop, right? Mm-hmm. So as you make decisions about your model architecture and as you retrain for different model, model architectures and you can make new optimization decisions on the model layer and change the convolution, the data types, and doing all sorts of things like pruning and, and compression, deep compression, et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. put a compiler in the loop to like TVM and mm-hmm. measure What's the performance that you're getting as part of your search loop? Because then you really get the synergies. You're right that you cannot completely, de- you can decouple them in principle and mm-hmm. you're still going to do relatively well. But if you do both of them together, I think you're up for m- more than uh, the addition of either of them in terms of potential opportunities. That's what TVM did in terms of high level graph and low level optimization. By doing them together, we show that we can do better. And, you know, I do think that the same thing, I do think, you know, I have data points that shows that the same thing could happen if you do model building and tuning decisions together with a low model compilation and hardware tuning together, right? So are there trade-offs between, like, you know, with GCC, you can like optimize for memory or you can, you know, optimize for like speed. Is there like, like a latency memory size trade-off here? Or are they both sort of like aligned with each other? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Of course, one one optimization that definitely impact, impacts memory usage specifically is when you do model compression or if you do quantization, right? So if you go from FP32 to int 8, you, know, you already have a 4x footprint reduction in your... You go from 32 bits to 8 bits. But that'll also make it right? run faster, right? So there's no like real trade-off there if the quantization keeps yeah. the, the performance you are, right? Potentially. If you're assuming quantization, that's just like you have the same model architecture and you just like change the data type and go... But that's, I would say, 
that's sort of like the, the easy, lazy quantization. <laughs> the right way of doing it, in my opinion, is that once you change the data type, you're not given an opportunity to actually go and retrain it and know some parts of your model become less, you know, I think the right way of doing quantization is not just quantize the data type and forget about it, right? It's actually close the loop and put it on uh, an, a, a network architecture search such that as you change the data type, you actually allow for different types of... And then in that case, you... I think you're up for significant changes to the model that would make quantization potentially even more even more effective, right? So, mm-hmm. so then yeah, so you're asking, so, but I, didn't, I did not answer your question. So, what's the trade-off between latency and footprint? Well, it could be that, like, it could be that you actually quantize your model, but then you actually make it deeper to actually make up for some for some some accuracy loss, which mm-hmm. might make your model actually potentially slower, mm-hmm. right? But use a lot less memory. So there is that trade-off there too. I guess like my experience of deploying models, and I'm just an amateur at this, but I love my Raspberry Pis and other, yeah, <laughs> you know, and we, we other have cheap a hardware. Raspberry Pis, and, and we support Raspberry Pis pretty well in TVM, but we should try it out. So I will definitely try it after this. I so I I did it kind of in the early days of trying to get TensorFlow to run, when even that was a challenge, and I felt like basically with models it was sort of binary, where like either I could fit it in the Pis memory and it would run, or I couldn't fit in the last memory and it wouldn't run. So it seemed like less about sort of like optimizing and just like either I'm sort of like stuck or I'm, I'm not. Is that like well, a common situation? Or It's hard to say if it's, if it's common. Like often, at least for the models that we get, they get to the point where, you know, we, we, we pay attention to them and we know that they run now, but they typically don't run, say, the frame rates that you want. You get mm-hmm. half a frame per second and you, and you can well not show your path to 20 frames per second, right? So uh-huh. by, by that time, you know, the model already fits. You're optimizing for... For, for performance, but often, you know, this p- performance optimization comes also with model size reduction. Quantization is another one. Keep like let's right. go. Let's say if you can just go from FP sixteen to int eight and it works well. Boom, you do that. You save. You probably improve performance and you also reduce reduce model model size, right? Uh-huh. But I've seen plenty of cases where the model already runs, and what's what's hard is actually get to to target latency that would actually enable the model to be useful. That's actually by and large what we tend to see is you get your model to run, you hack it enough to go there, but then it's never <laughs> fast enough. And then you're going to go and you need it on the 10x ahead of you uh, for it to actually be useful, right? So Totally. Well, cool. I, I don't want to um, not ask you about your company, Octobel. I feel like you're one in a growing line of people that no, you're it's... talking to, their professors and like starting companies. I mean, what inspired you to... To, to build this company? Yeah, great question. So first of all, it's one of those moments where all the stars are aligned, you know, so TVM, TVM was, has uh, had gotten quite a bit. We started the company just about, you know, a little under two years ago. TVM was, it had quite a bit of adoption by then already. And we saw more and more hardware vendors is starting to choose TVM as their chosen software stack. And we ran our, our second conference here in Seattle and I saw like the last one full of people like, oh, there's an opportunity here to make TVM even more broadly, what TVM can do more broadly accessible, right? So, and then the size are I said aligning because I was, was looking to start another company, you know, had become full professor a couple of years before then. The core, a lot of the core PhD students in TVM were graduating and now in started coming. It's like, hey, let's all, and one of our big, you know, a, a big champions of TVM, Jason Knight was at Intel at that time, was one of our co-founders, you know, was also looking to starting uh, something. And then we just like, in all the size aligned in form and I couldn't be, I feel extremely lucky that we had that group of people to ready to start a company. And then, you know, I mean, we worked really well together. There's a lot of synergy there. But then, you know, so that's sort of like the stars aligned part. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of technology, you know, it became really clear to, to all of us that, look, you have this cross product between model and hardware. 
Mm-hmm. And there's such a huge opportunity to create a clean abstraction there and at the same time automate away what's what's becoming harder and harder about making machine learning truly useful and deployable, right? So honestly, in the, in the ML ops, and I don't love that term, you know, because it means so many things, but going from data to to a deployed model, you know, it's clear that the tools to create models got good pretty fast. We have, you know... A lot of there are a lot of people that can create models today, and good models are large repository of models to start from. Mm-hmm. But you know, after interviewing a bunch of potential customers, we realized that hey, you know, well, people have actually have a lot of difficulties in getting models to be deployed, mm-hmm. precisely because of the software engineering required and the and the level of performance requirement and cost requirement and to make it viable. So we we formed OctoML to essentially make TVM even more accessible, or technologies like TVM even more accessible to a broad set of, of model builders and also make it part of the flow. Like we have, let me just tell briefly what the optimizer is. So the optimizer is a machine learning acceleration platform, right? So it has TVM at its heart, right? So you have a really clean either API, you know, just a couple of calls, upload model, choose and then download optimized model, right? So then you can choose a harder target and then you upload a model, you can choose the harder targets that you want, and then you know the optimizer calls TVM or also can use Onyx runtime, and we're gonna keep adding, and we're gonna keep adding more. You know, again, we we want to offer the user the abstraction that you upload a model and you get the fastest possible model ready to be deployed on your hardware in a fully automated fashion. Mm-hmm. You either get a Python will ready to download, or mm-hmm. you know, you, we're working on gRPC, gRPC packing so you can deploy in the cloud or you know, cloud functions and so on. And then so the value add here is all this automation that we provide on top of TVM. And also the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, TVM uses machine learning for machine learning, and we have a data set for a lot of the core hard attacks that the world cares about, just ready to go. So you don't have to go and collect it yourself. So I would think running OctoML, you'd have real visibility into how the different hardware platforms com- compare with each other. I'm yeah. sure you don't want to offend your the hardware partners, but do, do you sort of have like first pass recommendations for, for what people should be targeting in different situations? Yeah, so, and that's one of the things that I want the numbers to speak for themselves. So what you can do is you can, if you come to the Optimize, in fact, you know, we are open for early access and we actually have some uh, real users already using it regularly. So you upload a model, you can choose all sorts of hard attacks. And then you're going to get, you're going to get a, you're going to get a dashboard saying, here's your model, here's the latency of each one of these hardware targets. Mm-hmm. And we and we can compare TVM with other runtimes like Onyx runtime, for example, and we're going to show you which one you should use. And you, uh, you can choose based on that. Of course, we're making it that we're working hard to improve the interface to enable users to make decisions about costs too, for example. You know, if you're not, you wanna, you might want to get the highest throughput per dollar, for example, right? So uh, I would say that it's fair to say that, you know, models vary so much that tell if there's any, it's hard to say up front, like this is going to be the best. How do you should run, run there, run it through the, through the optimizer, get the most efficient, you know, version and binder of your model out and then measure that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I guess that that kind of actually leads me into the the two questions that we always uh, end with, which I want to give you kind of time to to chew on. And I haven't asked you about a lot of your research. It seems super fascinating. But I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, like, what do you think is like a topic in machine learning that doesn't get enough attention that like if you had an extra extra time to just work on something that you're interested in, maybe you would pick to, to go deeper on? Yeah, so honestly, it's getting more and more attention now, but I've always been, and a lot of my research has been on automating systems design with machine learning and for machine learning, right? Uh So TVM is one example of using machine learning to enable better model optimization and compilation, but also, you know, doing hardware design and programming FPGAs, for example, is really hard and machine learning could have a huge uh, place there. So I'd say designing what I want is really model in and 
automatic hardware plus software out, ready to be uh, ready to be deployed. I think that's that's one that I'm passionate about, and I think it can have quite a bit of impact. Precisely because it you can reap the benefits in so many ways. You get new experiences because you enable new applications, but also making more energy efficient, right? So I think we should actually always look at what is the energy cost of deploying this at scale if it's going to be deployed at scale. Because in rich countries, you don't think about it, right? You just go pay the energy even if it's high. And the, but now if you really actually think about the, the environmental impact of running this at scale, it's something that one should, should pay attention to. So. so this is actually using machine learning to optimize the model. To, to using machine learning to optimize not just the model the but also the, the system yes yeah, the model and the system that runs your model such that you get better behavior out they can be faster higher throughput per dollar but also much lower energy use and i think it's definitely incredibly exciting and and possible to do right so that's that's one of them now let's see one that doesn't get as much attention but now it's getting more attention that's dear to my heart we're not touching too is the role of of machine learning in in uh, molecular biology Oh, right. yeah, so, me too. I totally agree. So I, as, as part of my research personality, you know, like I, uh, for the past six years or so, I've been heavily involved in an uh, effort to design, you know, systems for, for uh, using DNA molecules for data storage and for simple forms of computation. Some of it is actually related to machine learning. For example, we recently demonstrated the ability of doing similarity search directly as a chemical reaction. And what's cool about wow. that is that not only it's, you know, it's cool, like, you know, definitely pushing as a new device technology alternative. Yeah, uh, that's very viable and has been time tested by nature, right? But <laughs> time it can be tested for sure. <laughs> yeah, it can be extremely energy efficient, uh-huh. and and fundamentally, the design of molecular systems is so complex that I cannot imagine any other way to design them <laughs> than using machine learning to actually design those molecules. And we do it all the time. Like we had a paper that you might find cool late last year. It was in Nature Communications called Parcupine, and we uh-huh. use machine learning to design DNA molecules in such a way that they look so different to a DNA sequencer. They're not going to be natural DNA, but we can use this to tag things. So we design machine, we design these molecules. You can go and tag art or tag clothes and so on. So you take a quick sample, you run through a sequencer. You can authenticate that based on these molecular traces. But that was made possible because of machine learning in designing the molecule and actually uh, interpreting the signal out of the DNA sequencer and so on. And I feel this space, it's not fair to say it's not getting enough attention. I think it's getting more and more now precisely because of the, you know, the pandemic and all of the other reasons why molecular biology matters, right? But I find it incredibly exciting and it's a lot of the high-level motivation for things that I do both in research and in industry is enabling use cases like that and things that require so much computation that wouldn't be possible before without a very efficient, very fast system, right? So, mm-hmm. cool. And I, and I guess the question we always end with, which you've touched on a lot in this in this conversation, is really what you see like the the big challenges are today of getting machine learning working in the real world. Like, you know, maybe when you talk to your customers and they they sort of optimize their models, like what are the other challenges that they run into when they're trying to get their optimized model just like deployed and working for some end use case? Yeah, so, well, of, of course, I'm, I'm devoting a good chunk of my life into the deployment, you know, automating the engineering involving deployment, you know, totally. but I don't want to sound too self-serving to say that's the biggest problem. I think that's a huge problem. It's a huge impediment in terms of skills, skill set, because it requires people that know about software engineering, about low-level system software, and know about machine learning. So that's super hard. So that's one, definitely mm-hmm. getting your model ready for deployment. But then there is other ones, which is just making sure that your model is behaving the way it's expected post-deployment, mm-hmm. like observability, right? So making sure that, you know, there's not unexpected inputs to make your model misbehave, have fail-safe behavior, and so on. I, I think that's 
one that you know is no news probably to this community that some applications require either because it's the right thing to do when a model is making decisions that are super important you want to understand how they're done and making sure that they actually hold in unexpected inputs right so i think that's one of the harder ones because like any engineer you, you know that's thinking about the whole system you want to think about the weakest link in the system failure and i worry that if you don't do something proactively the weakest link in these systems are going to start being the models that you can't really reason them in a principled way yeah Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. This is a lot of fun. Of course. Thank you. Lucas. Really this is awesome. It. Yeah. So yeah. I, I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. If you're enjoying Gradient Descent, I'd really love for you to check out Fully Connected, which is an inclusive machine learning community that we're building to let everyone know about all the stuff going on in ML and all the new research coming out. If you go to wmb.ai slash FC, you can see all the different stuff that we do, including Gradient Descent, but also salons where we talk about new research and folks share insights, AMAs where you can directly connect with members of our community, and a Slack channel where you can get answers to everything from very basic questions about ML to bug reports on weights and biases to uh, how to hire an ML team. We're looking forward to meeting you.